If you're like a lot of people, you might be struggling. The adoption of hybrid work has changed so many things, not just where and when you work, but also how our relationships work. Like, how do we build relationships and nurture them, and how do we sustain them in this environment? Because those relationships at work are really important to how we feel about our overall experience and how we get work done. Welcome to season two of Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, and I'm with our producer, Rebecca Charbosky. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rebecca. How we work has changed so dramatically, regardless of where we're working and on which days. And in the middle of all this change, people and a lot of organizations are challenging these long-held assumptions we've had about how people work what work means, and the places people work. And our new global research is showing that in the last year, people's productivity has dropped, their connection to culture and work-life balance is down, and in the U.S., engagement is down significantly. And so the likelihood of someone to leave their job in the next six months has gone way up. That's that struggle you were talking about. Yeah. It's really complicated right now at work. We know employees are more empowered, but a lot of the headlines are saying the boss is back in charge. And meanwhile, well-being has become so much more of a focus at work as people understandably reevaluate how work fits into their lives. So this season, we want to move the conversation beyond who's doing hybrid work and when they're doing it. Let's explore how work is changing and how to make it better. So Rebecca, let's talk about what's coming up this season. We have such a great season ahead of us. Mm -hmm. We have a lineup of guests who are experts in how to reestablish those relationships that really make our work days more fun and help us get work done. If you know anybody who needs to have a better day at work, we'd really appreciate if you would share this podcast with them. Our first guest is Amy Gallo. Amy is the author of Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. We really, really enjoyed talking with her, and she's going to give us some tips on how to deal with tough personalities at work. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of the podcast that Amy co-hosts for HBR. It's called Women at Work. So good. Yes. And she's also a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, and she writes about workplace dynamics. So stick around after we talk with Amy and hear from Jessie's story. She's a director of design at Steelcase, and she focuses on how design can help with the things that Amy's talking about, like conflict, communication, and discomfort. Amy's joining us today from Providence, Rhode Island. So thanks for being here, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, Chris. Yeah, I am too, honestly, because I've read so much over the years about dealing with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I heard on your podcast on Women at Work, which I highly recommend, uh, I follow HBR's, uh, a lot of their podcasts, but I really love the Women at Work podcast. So to our listeners, if you haven't heard that, I highly recommend it. Um, But when I heard that, Amy, you were writing this book or you had written this book about getting along, the official title is Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And I've read a lot over the years about this topic, but I have to say that your book was the first, like I really found it really helpful and really pragmatic and useful. Um, I like a lot about the way you've kind of broken it down. So I want to dive into talking about those personalities, but first I'd like to talk about this within the context of hybrid work, because this is the way that we're all working right now. And I'm just curious, like, In the world of hybrid work, there's a lot of things we're trying to navigate, and obviously relationships and interpersonal relationships is part of that. So I'm just curious, like, what are some of the things you're seeing about hybrid work and then navigating relationships at work? Yeah, I mean, I think like anything that you think about in relation to hybrid work is that there are pros and cons, right? And and in some ways... Being remote, not seeing someone in person every day, not being able to read their body language. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, if there are challenges in your relationship, if there's tension, um, unresolved conflict, you know, working in a hybrid model or in a remote model would make those harder, 
right? Mm -hmm. We don't have as much empathy as we might when we see someone in person. Mm -hmm. These remote, you know, forms of communication, whether it's Zoom or text-based interactions like instant message, Slack, right? All of those are ripe for misunderstanding and miscommunication. So if you don't have a strong relationship or if there are actual negative issues present in your relationship, those are going to be harder Mm -hmm. in a remote environment or a hybrid environment. And you aren't going to have, you know, the hallway conversation to quickly smooth things over or a, you know, ability to uh, look someone in the eye to understand Mm -hmm. what what they're truly meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, that said, I have relationships with my Harvard Business Review colleagues that are really strong. And I actually worked remotely most of the time, even before the pandemic. And I have found that the hybrid model or the remote model with them isn't that big of a deal. You know, I think it really depends on the the quality of your relationships, as well as your own personal preferences, right? I, I don't mind. I'm an introvert, right? I, I love being able to leave a meeting and go sit quietly in my living room for a few <laughs> minutes before my next one, rather than having to chat with someone in the hallway, right? Um, and for others, you know, I think about my husband, for example, who's an extreme extrovert. Working remotely every day was horrible for him. He hated it. Yeah. And so it, it really will depend on your personality and on, on the quality of your relationships. I will say overall, you know, there is a deterioration of a connection, right? Where, where these modes of communication are flatter, they communicate less emotion, they communicate less nuance, and that is going to present challenges for you. And one of my biggest concerns, I'm actually working on an article about this, it'll likely be out um, by the time this podcast is out, is that hybrid gives us an excuse to not address some of the conflicts that come up because mm. we think, oh, I'll, I'll talk to them when we're both in the office. Yeah. But who knows when you're both going to be in the office, right? right? Especially if you don't have a strict hybrid you know, in-office schedule like many organizations don't. Yeah. Plus, like when I have a difficult conversation to have, I want to have that in person because I yes. I feel a need to have that kind of connection with somebody that's deeper than what I can get in kind of the 2D and the screen. Like mm-hmm. I want to read your whole body language and I want you to read mine so you know what, you know, my intention. Um, yeah, so I, I can see that maybe some of those things would maybe sit out there and fester a little bit. Um, so... So let's talk a little bit about, you identified eight archetypes of difficult people. That was one of the things I found really helpful. And I think we can all probably relate to uh, all of these, you know, they've got great names, you know, the insecure boss, the know-it-all. I think I might be a little bit of that. Uh, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, it's maybe where being nerdy crosses over into being obnoxious a little bit. Yeah. But um, <laughs> anyway, you know, the pessimist, the tormentor, et cetera, I thought those were all really helpful. And in something that I was reading before we had a chance to talk, you said that the the worst is the passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what is it about the passive aggressive personality type that you'd say, well, that one's really tricky? Yeah, I mean, saying it's the worst is probably not fair because if you think about the costs of working with many of these archetypes, um, you know, and that's actually a section in each chapter, I talk about the costs of working with that, with a person who exhibits those patterns of behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, something like the tormentor or the biased colleague or the insecure manager are going to have much deeper costs for you than working with someone who's passive aggressive. Mm. The reason I think passive aggressive is the worst is because I think it's the hardest one to address Mm -hmm. because the other ones you can maybe be direct. You can maybe use some more indirect or influencing skills to nudge them in the right direction. But with passive aggressive, it can feel like my friend Annie McKee calls it shadow boxing, right? Where Mm. you're like trying to land with them something, a comment, or you're asking them a question, and it's just this constant evasion. And, you know, I, I think it's the worst also because I think the advice I give in the book, I do believe it works, but there's many times it won't. There are lots of good reasons that someone behaves passive-aggressively. Mm-hmm. You know, they're afraid of conflict. They right. don't have power. They're afraid of rejection. 
those are valid reasons to not be direct with someone. Yeah. But they're also really hard for you as their colleague to fix or to remedy so that they feel comfortable being more straightforward. So one of the things I love on the podcast, I described it as listening to you have a therapy session with people. So uh, again, for our listeners, if you haven't heard this, you know, like Amy has talked to people, to callers or people in an audience and had their questions and then she's answered them pretty directly. So do you mind if we do a little bit of that and like role play a tiny bit? And of course. So we can hear some of the things that you might want to say. So sure. I'm going to try and be passive aggressive. <laughs> Go for so, it. All, all right. Go for it. All right. Some, by the way, I have to say, you strike me as someone who would not be passive aggressive. <laughs> so like, I feel like you're stretching your acting chops right here. Right? Well, you can give me feedback and let me know whether I, <laughs> I, I did a good job on this one. But so if I'm passive aggressive, I might do something like say, yeah, Amy, I'll send out an email after the meeting or um, I'll get back to you by the end of day. But then I never do. Yeah. Uh, is that a good passive aggressive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a class. That's a classic passive aggressive move. Okay. Yep. So first of all, if I know that you're the type of person who might not follow up, I might try to preempt that by you saying, "Yeah, yeah, I'll send that by the end of the day." I might get back to my desk and just send an email, just say confirming what we just discussed that you'll send that by the end of the day. Right. Mm. Because now I've got a record. Yep. Not that you're going to forward that to their boss or maybe if, if it becomes extreme, but you put them on notice that I'm paying attention to your commitments. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do this, there'll likely be a consequence for doing so. So that's one thing to try to sort of preempt some of that behavior when you know they do it. Yeah. If you didn't do that, right? Like, and I have to come back to you and say, you know, Chris, that email never arrived. Mm -hmm. Right. And I might just even just say it like that. Like, Chris, I never got that email. Mm -hmm. You know, and just leave it at that and then let you decide, are you going to make an excuse? Are you going to tell me why? Right. And then, I don't know, can you play the role of passive aggressive? If I, just, if I, if I stop by to your desk and say, you, you know, that email you said you'd send never arrived. Yeah, and I might go, oh, um, yeah, you know, I, I was going to, but, you know, I, I got pulled into this other meeting and I'll get back to you. Or um, is was that what a passive aggressive yeah, person I think so. would do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dodging, right? Yeah, Dodging, dodge. right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so then in that case, I might say, okay, well, when do you think you could send it? Uh, I'll get on that tomorrow, Amy. Okay. <laughs> is that is that what a passive aggressive person would do? Or Yep. I mean, and they yeah. may be lying. And they right? may be lying like, or they might do it. What I would say is like, so great, actually, could you send it by 9 a.m.? Because here's what will happen if I don't receive that email, mm -hmm. right? Like, like start laying out the consequences of their evasion. Mm. Again, 9 a.m. make roll around tomorrow morning. I still have no email from Chris. And then I might stop by your desk and say, you know, I still didn't get that email. I get a sense that there's something else going on that maybe you don't want to send the email. I totally may be misinterpreting that, but is there something else going on? Yeah, because I might be thinking to myself, passive aggressive, like, Amy, you're not the boss of me. Like, what, mm -hmm. what are you telling me that I need to get you this email by the end of the day or by nine o'clock? Like, get out of my business. You know, I don't... Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. And so then then it's like, okay, well, what else is going on? And they, they may not say exactly what you just said, which uh -huh. is like, you're not the boss of me. I don't want this... I don't want to be engaged in this like power dynamic with you. Right. But again, you've shown them I'm paying attention. I'm going to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to let this go. And, you know, at some point you might even step back with, you know, I might step back with you, Chris, after this, maybe this, let's say this is the second, third, fourth time this has happened mm -hmm. and say, Chris, you know, I, I feel like when I ask you to do something, you don't always follow through, and I'm not sure if it's the way I'm asking or if there's something else going on between us. What's what's up, right? And and yeah. and really doing so in a way that makes them uh, feel comfortable, right? Like you're not challenging. Right. You'll notice I'm trying to keep a very neutral voice. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to shame them. I'm just trying to sort of lay out the facts, and 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 also explain the consequence. It's like you know, it's I really am relying on you to help me with this project or this pro the success of this project relies on us collaborating and following through with one another. 
you know, how can how can we get things back on track? Yeah. What you just said a minute ago really struck me as something that I could see being effective because, you know, we've all probably worked with passive aggressive people and you just feel like you're butting your head up against the wall. But what you just said about like, this is the impact on me. Like if, if I don't get that email by nine o'clock, like I need it because of, and to me that felt less like you were bossing me around and more like, oh, okay, well, she needs this because our work is interdependent in some way. So that like, I would think that a passive aggressive person might be really responsive to the way you just kind of coached us to handle that. Yeah. And the other alternative is to explain how what something that you want as Chris, as the passive aggressive person, is going to be hindered by this. Yeah. Right. So you can say, you know what, I'm concerned if I don't get that email, then I won't be able to send the report to finance. And I think that's really going to hinder the project we've been working on. Right. And you don't have to say, I know you care about the project, too. Like, you don't have to do that. Just like make it clear. Here are the consequences of not following through. Okay. This is great. Can we do another one? Yeah, please. I'm like, we'll do like a rapid round uh, yeah, of, yeah. Of, a, of a couple here. Sure. So now I'm going to get into what I think is more familiar territory, which is the know-it-all. Um, mm. But let's assume that we're in a meeting and you know, you're know you mm-hmm. talking and you're sharing your idea. And, and maybe I speak over you and kind of cut you off and say, yeah, thanks, Amy. But I have a lot of knowledge on this topic. And so you know, let's not waste a lot of time. Let's just do X. Mm, yeah. How oh, do you, boy. How do you respond to that one? Yeah. The, the tricky one about this, and not to nerd out on research, but the research shows that as um, a member of an underestimated group, it is much less effective for me to call out that behavior, right? Mm-hmm. It, for me to say, you just talked over me. Right. I could end up coming off as shrill. I could end up coming off as weak. Again, this is what research shows. So, one of the best things in that circumstance is actually to have a pre-agreement with anyone who you have a strong relationship with to say, you know, this know-it-all interrupts me regularly. Mm -hmm. When that happens, would you be able to speak up? And I'll do the same for you. So like you're my ally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that, And then your ally says, oh, hold up, Chris, Amy didn't finish. You do have a lot of expertise here, but Amy does too. So let's hear her out. Okay. Right? Something like that. Now, you can, if you want to address it directly, you can also say, okay, I'm going to finish my point and then I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Right? Just very direct. And you might even say, like, I know you have a lot of insight. I do too. And in fact, I don't know if you're familiar with my background in this. Mm. And maybe even help educate them about your background. Now, you don't want to get in a toe-to-toe battle with them about who has more expertise. Right. But it's okay to say, I have expertise too. Yeah. You know, it feels like this can be tricky, well, tricky in general, but particularly tricky depending on where you are in the hierarchy in the organization. So if the the know-it-all is your boss, your CEO, that can be a really tough one. Do you vary how you deal with a know-it-all if they're really high in the hierarchy? Yeah, I mean, you have to be aware of the power dynamics. And there's there's obviously the power dynamics you're talking about, positional power, but there's also reputational power. So maybe the know-it-all is, is not is a peer at the same level as you, but they're very well respected by the organization. So challenging them will maybe incur more cost for you. So you have to be aware of that, certainly. And sometimes you let things go because you know that it's too risky to challenge them. Now, do I love that that's the case? No, but I do want to be realistic that, you know, saying to the CEO, you talked over me four (laughs) times in that meeting is not going to help you, right? Probably not. Right. So think about what's actually would be effective and what's my goal here? Is my goal to stop being interrupted? Is my goal to keep my job? Is my goal to feel good about how I've handled myself? And then make a decision about how direct to be accordingly. You know, some people have a boss who they can. I have a boss in in my work at HBR who I can just say, wait, what's going on? Like, what did you just say? Like, I have that relationship. And you might too, in which case, go for it. But you do want to be aware of the risks. Uh, One caution, though, about the risks is I think we often focus on the risks of taking action. And we don't think about the costs of inaction. Ah, And so I think we need to remember 
when we're doing the risk assessment of is this safe to speak up? Will I incur any you know, reputational damage from doing that? Also ask, well, what happens if I don't speak up? And yeah. for a know-it-all, sometimes the risk of not speaking up is they just keep doing it. Right. We talk about interruptions as if they're rude, but they have costs. Sure. They can make you look, you know, inexperienced or that your ideas and your voice won't be heard. Those are really, you, you want to take that seriously. Yeah. You know, so none of us probably wake up in the morning going, I'm going to go into the office and be a know-it-all or be a <laughs> victim or passive-aggressive. So right. human beings do this. How do we identify this within ourselves? Is there a way that we can take this work and look back at ourselves and go, hmm, am I doing that? Yeah. You know, that's one of the most surprising reactions I've had to the book since it's been out um, is how many people comment on something I posted on LinkedIn or send me an email and say, I read chapter three and I realize I'm the insecure manager. And I, it shocks me actually, because it takes a lot of self-awareness to see that. I think even though it's not your intention, you do have to have a sense of the impact you're having on people. And this is where getting really valuable feedback can be helpful. Like, do you have people in the organization who you can go to and say, you know, I know there's ways in which I'm holding myself back. What do you think those are? Mm. Or I suspect, because chances are, even though no one, I agree, no one gets up and is like, off to work, I'm going to be passive aggressive today, right? <laughs> even though you don't intend that, you probably have a hunch that that's what you do. And so that I would even test that as say, I know sometimes I'm afraid of conflict or I cannot be direct. Do you think I'm coming off as passive aggressive? And be sure to ask the person who won't, you know, you don't want to ask the yes person mm -hmm. who's like, no, 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 oh, no you're yeah. great. Right, right. You want the person who will be like, mm, yeah, I see that sometimes. And you may even make it easier for them by saying, when I said this in that meeting, do you think it might have come off as passive aggressive? Mm -hmm. Right. Or do you, can you imagine a situation in which that would have sounded passive aggressive to others or put yourself in that person's shoes? Do you think they heard it as passive aggressive? Like ask a very specific question and that will give you a sense. But self-awareness is hard. I mean, it's knowing that you or even admitting to yourself that you might be someone's difficult colleague. That's that's hard to do. The more you can get reflection from other people the more likely you'll be able to recognize these patterns. Yeah. I've joked sometimes, like, how do we really know if we're self-aware? My self-awareness may be like, I think I'm a great person. I think I'm awesome. I'm self-aware of how awesome I am. So uh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. that could be a really tricky one to figure out. Um, hey, Amy, I want to talk to you about some other work that you've done and one of the things that I've also found really valuable. In fact, at Steelcase, we use the Harvard Business Review guide videos and one that Amy's done on active listening. And we actually use those as part of our leadership training. And I know that active listening is a lot more than just like nodding or, you know, trying to be a sponge and kind of soaking in what you're saying. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit for our listeners about how you would describe good active listening skills and why it's so important. Yeah. I do think people think active listening is like this nodding and mm -hmm. really like, I don't have, I have my phone away. I'm making eye contact with you. Right. And sometimes that can make someone feel heard. But what really makes people feel heard is engaging with their ideas. So you're not just, like you said, absorbing like a sponge, but you're giving lift to their ideas. Mm. You're, you know, so if someone comes to you and says, this is, you know, this is in the, you know, in the video, this example, if someone comes to you and says, I'm really nervous about the speech I have coming up to the team or this, you know, my presentation to the team, instead of saying, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine, right? You might think that's listening because you heard their concern and then you responded to it. You might say, you know what? I, I also was nervous when I first started presenting to the team. What are you worried about, right? So you're validating what they heard. You're acknowledging that this is, other people also experience this but then you're asking for more information. Yeah. And I think that one of the keys also with active listening is to think about what's the center of that conversation, right? So, you know, if you are talking, why are you talking? And are you talking about yourself or are you asking, are you sharing a story because you want to talk and you want to hear your own voice? Or are you sharing a story because it's actually really pertinent to them? 
And are you asking questions because you want to prove how smart you are? Or are you asking questions because you really want to understand their perspective? Mm. So I, I really think of it as engaged listening, not just active listening, but engaged listening. And it's a back and forth. You know, it's not they speak, you listen, you speak, they listen. It's a an exchange of ideas, a collaborative conversation in which you respond and interact with their ideas. Yeah, I've been fortunate to have some of those kinds of interactions. And, and you just, you you feel better. You know, literally, if I'm nervous about a presentation and rather than somebody just saying, ah, you'll be fine, which I, I know, I'm sure I've, I'm guilty of having done that with people in the past because I really believe they'd be fine. But but when I have that kind of interaction where somebody says to me, okay, well, like, what is it that's making you nervous? And I can say, well, you know, I'm just, um, so-and-so is going to be in the audience. And I just feel like, you know, when they're there, I get really anxious that they might judge me or, um, you know, they might just second guess what I'm saying. So, like, I'm nervous about that. And then in an active listening situation, then being able to articulate that, yeah, that gives you a chance to help me go, okay, now how do I manage through that? Yeah. Well, and then then you have so many places to go in that conversation, right? Of like, huh, why why is that person particular? Why are you worried about that particular person? Yeah. Or, um, well, what do you think you could do to to reduce your nervousness? Yeah. Or would it help to have a a conversation with that person ahead of time so they know what you're going to present about so that you're there you've you've engaged them ahead of time? Yeah. Right. Like, there's so many ways. And, and once you say, don't worry, you'll be fine, that's the end of the conversation. Right. You basically shut it down. Yep. So thinking about how do I continue the conversation? How do I open it up? And it's not, you know, it, all of the questions I just listed or suggestions, like they, they may sound as if you're helping that other person, but it's also, I'm having a much, I'm learning like, oh, why, why do you find it nerve-wracking to speak in front of so-and-so. Oh, what don't I know about that person? It's a way for you to learn as well and not just I'm doing this for this other person. Again, that two-way communication is so key. Yeah. So another thing I want to ask you about is conflict because, you know, I know a few people who I'd say, you know, I think they like to spar a little bit at work, but I'd say most of us kind of want to avoid it. Um, but yet you're an advocate for healthy conflict. I think emphasis on the word healthy. And I think the, some of the things we're talking about is already kind of touching on that a little bit. But I'd love for you to talk more about conflict. And and let's go back to the situation that we're in currently. Well, actually, I mean, I think it's it's going to be our, it is our new reality, which is this hybrid work. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering about how you feel about conflict in in that situation and how to make it constructive and beneficial. Yeah. So one of the things about having disagreements in a, a hybrid environment or a remote environment is that you really have to be much more intentional, right, about making clear what your perspective is, making clear what your goal in the conversation is. You have to be patient that it might take some time to resolve the conflict. And you know, I am an advocate of healthy conflict. And I think one of the things, you know, we were referring to this earlier, one of the things about hybrid is that it can be tempting to just say, eh, I'll put that off. Eh, that doesn't have to happen right now. Oh, we'll address that later. And I think we end up creating a situation in which we've sort of planted these evil seeds mm-hmm. <laughs> of discord that the more they grow, the more likely things are going to get worse, you know, the our interactions are going to get worse, our relationship is going to get more tense, the projects we work on together are probably going to suffer as a result. So addressing those pretty quickly and addressing the miscommunications, I share the story in, in my book of a, someone who thought that her colleague was rolling his eyes at her during a meeting and on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And she was so furious and she let this sort of fester for a while. And when she actually finally addressed it with him, he said, oh my gosh, I have a clock above my computer. Mm-hmm. I was That was the day I was picking up my kid from school and I was worried about being late. He was trying to look up quickly and it looked like an eye roll. Right. And so had she said, wait, did you just roll your eyes? 
Right, like he could have, oh, no, no, I have this clock, right? Yeah. Or he could have said, yeah, you know what, I'm sorry, that's really rude. I'm actually just frustrated by what you said because it's not aligned with what my team has found out about this. You know, there's ways of addressing it in the moment that I think can be much more uh, effective than letting these things fester. And, you know, when I referred earlier about being intentional, the other thing is, because we're not getting the body language, right? right? You and I are on video right now while we're recording this. Yeah. I can see from your neck up, right. right? I don't see what you're doing with your hands. I don't see your legs if they're fidgeting. Like I'm missing and I don't see the context in which you're sitting. So we really don't have a full picture. So getting on a Zoom and saying, listen, my intention right now is to make sure that we're on the same page so that we can go back to our teams and smooth the way for a successful project launch, right? Make that clear before you launch into, wait, how did you see this? Wait, what's going on? You know, really just laying out, this is my intention. This is my goal. Trying to return to that goal if things get tense. That can help to compensate sometimes for some of the lack of context that we have that we naturally pick up on when we're in the same space together. Yeah. It feels like sometimes in this new way of working, you know, and there's a lot of data and research about how meeting time is getting more condensed, like the rise of these short but like rapid succession meetings that you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And it feels like that environment, it's really difficult to make time for or have the situation in which it's comfortable to kind of cope with any sort of interpersonal conflict. So it feels like that's one more hurdle that you have to overcome. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, and this is a total, I mean, we we think video conferencing is a good replacement for in-person. And sometimes mm-hmm. it is. But the reality is I'm sitting here looking you straight in the eye, which if you and I were going to have a challenging conversation in a conference room or even in a coffee shop, right, we wouldn't look at each other the whole time. Right. We'd look at our coffee. We'd look at the clock. We'd look at the table. There's something so aggressive about having to look in someone's eyes the entire time when you're having a challenging conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not a great medium for these sensitive conversations for that reason, the lack of context, but also the like, you know, aggressive eye contact we have to make. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It's just we have to realize there are limits to it and there are downsides and we have to figure out how to compensate for those downsides. Sometimes actually when I'm having a tricky conversation, I'll choose to have a phone call. Then I don't have to have this sort of weird eye contact, Mm -hmm. but I can pick up and I actually find for me, I pick up better the tone of their voice, their emotion, if I'm not actually also having to watch their body language. Mm. So somehow a phone conversation for me personally is easier for what might be a difficult conversation. That is interesting. Amy, I do want you to know, since we are on video, that if it looks like I'm looking to the side a lot, <laughs> I have my <laughs> notes on the screen. Uh, so... I just wanted you to know that so you don't think like I'm not interested in what we're talking about. So see, you just modeled that that behavior perfectly. Like I'm just making clear what's going on. Same thing if like, you know, if I get on a call and be like, hey, I'm waiting for a package. If I disappear for two minutes, it's just because I'm meeting the UPS driver at the door or whatever. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff you would pick up on. If we were in the same room, I'd see your notes to the side. You know, I have noticed you looking inside. I assumed that I was giving you the benefit of the doubt. That was what was going Thank on. Thank you exactly. so much for that. Well, I just want to make sure and stay on track. So I have another question that I'm I'm wanting to ask you about. It relates to the reasons why some people prefer remote work. You know, you were saying your husband, you know, really liked to be in the office. I know I'm an extrovert. I I had a really tough time when I was spending most of my time uh, at my home office. But one of the things that I've wondered about is like the reasons that people give, at least according to research that we've done and others have done, you know, they're very pragmatic reasons that a lot of people say when they prefer to work from home, like they want to avoid the commute or they want to avoid the time that it takes to get ready for work and all of that. What I've wondered about, though, is some of the things we're talking about, like the interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Is that something that might be playing a role here as well? Like, I just don't want to deal with coming into the office and somebody who's that passive aggressive person. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I have certainly had people tell me, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with this colleague now that I'm working remotely. Or um, my team is just so much more focused on the work and less on the drama now that we're working remotely. 
So I do think that that plays a role. And I, especially for people who are working with someone they find really difficult, I think about the archetype of the biased coworker in my book, right? If you're on the receiving end of microaggressions, working from home and not having to deal with that, mm-hmm. great. Like that must feel so relieving in many ways. Not that microaggressions don't happen in virtual environments, but you know, having to not see that person day in and day out, especially someone who you may not have to interact with, but you would passively in the office, that can be a big relief. And, you know, and there is research that shows we are more task focused in remote environments. This was research done before the pandemic. So take it with a grain of salt. But you know, we tend to be more focused on the actual things we need to get done rather than the relational. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a flip side to that, which is that we know from tons of research that having positive relationships with our coworkers is good for us, good for the teams, good for the work, good for the organization. So if we're shortchanging that, if we are not forming relationships because these mediums are not as conducive to it, it's likely going to hinder the work as well. So I think, you know, with all things hybrid, there's both positive and negative. And that I do think some people have found relief in these work setups. And I think there's also risk that we are forgetting a really important part of how we do work. And I'm actually curious, Chris, what's your take on that? Like, do you think people the hesitancy to go in the office has to do with interpersonal dynamics. I mean, the reason I asked the question is just because it it struck me when I was reading your book that I was thinking about what are some of the things that, to me, as I've worked at home, like I thought, well, you know, at least I don't have to deal with this or, you know, and, and I began to wonder about that. But I think one of the things I worry about, honestly, is one of the benefits of coming into the office is like, I get to see all kinds of, of people, Mm -hmm. um, you know, different people from different backgrounds. I mean, I, I feel like I've learned so much over the years from people from different cultures and, you know, just, I have to deal with people who have different political views than I do. And I have to interact with them. Mm -hmm. And I, I worry a little bit that if we don't put ourselves out and put ourselves into that situation in the workplace, are we missing out on actually development and growth that's going to help us personally as well as help our organizations? That's such a good point. And I think there is this idea that we are, you know, we are self-selecting into smaller and smaller communities or echo chambers, if you want to call them mm-hmm. that, right? And that hybrid or remote work allows us to do that, right? Like, I, I oh, now I get to only interact with my two best work colleagues yeah. as opposed to all of these people. Right. Um, that is a real downside. I think about this a lot in the context of conflict and difficult conversations. There's discomfort that comes with interacting with other humans of course. that I think many people feel like, well, if I could just avoid that, right? Yeah. But that's how you learn. That's how you grow. That's how you create really interesting work together. That's how you be innovative. And I think the insistence that so many people have on feeling comfortable and therefore avoiding conflict or avoiding interacting with people who aren't like them, we're doing ourselves and our organizations and certainly society a disservice. So I I do think that's an important point is that we, by working from home, we get to choose, you know, who we have the Zoom coffee with is probably going to be the person who looks and thinks and acts like us. Of course. Right? Of course. Yeah. And, you know, another group I'd just add to your list there is the younger generations, you know, who our data shows those are the people who are coming into the workplace the most, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's generations, you know, Gen X and boomers that maybe are coming into the workplace a little bit less. So I think, well, how are the younger generations learning? Are they getting a chance to see us model how we deal with relationships and how we deal with each other if we're not showing up? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to encourage all of my fellow Gen X baby boomer folks, <laughs> you know, like if you haven't been into the office this week, you know, go in and hang out with some of our uh, colleagues, our newer colleagues yeah. in the workplace. So this tension of do I work from home? Do I go in? Especially in an organization where I think we've rightly given employees flexibility to make the choice. 
it's hard. Like, and I feel the tension myself of like, I want to go in, I want to see my colleagues, but do I really want to commute? Like, do, oh, sometimes I have internet trouble when I'm there. Oh, but I get to hang out with my dog if I'm home. You know, like, I think we, and I know you all are really thinking about this is like, we need to create reasons for people to come in and spaces in which they can do these things that they want to do, which is interact with others. You know, I, one of the reasons I went to the office recently was for a training and it was a training on, on creating inclusive content. And it was wonderful. I was in a room with people I hadn't seen some since pre-pandemic. We were talking about ideas. We It was one of those things that obviously was so much better in person. And I was like, this is a reason to come in, right? I I just think we need to create more reasons like that for us to be in the office. Yeah, you know, one of the phrases that we've been using a lot is, you know, how do we create places that earn the commute, Mm -hmm. that earn people's commute? Like if you're going to bother to drive in, how do you create a space that gives you that sense of belonging or, you know, be able to create those kind of, relationships and feel a sense of community with people, you know, so how do we begin to think about designing experiences differently? Yeah. I love that. Earn the commute. And it's not just the like actual time in the car or on the bus or whatever. It's the mental hurdle, right? The commute is also a mental commute. How do I extract myself from the comfort of my own home and my pajamas and all of that and put myself into that, into that space? Amy, I know I could talk to you all day if you gave me the opportunity, but <laughs> but this has been a great conversation, and I'm just really grateful that you took the time today to talk with our audience about the things that you're learning and seeing. And you know, do you have any last thing that you would say to people? Any last words of wisdom about you know dealing with difficult people at work or listening or? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This has been a fun conversation. But one of the things I really do feel strongly about is that we have to experience some discomfort, conflict, disagreement. Those are not easy things. I mean, I, I've i written books on this, you know, hundreds of articles on this topic, and I still struggle with it. But that discomfort isn't a signal that you shouldn't do it. Mm. It's a signal that you're learning and you're getting better and you're you're doing the right work. So I don't want you to feel unsafe, but feeling uncomfortable is okay. And in, in fact, you know, something you might want to even lean into. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for being with us today, Amy. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. This has been great. So I'd like to introduce my colleague, Jessie Story, and she's joining us from Munich where she, as an American, has lived and worked in our design studio in Europe for the past 12 years. So Jesse has just this great sense of kind of this intersection of cultures and how to navigate all of that. And it just feels like this conversation that we've had with Amy really feels like one that I wanted to talk through with Jesse. So Jesse, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's dive right in because one of the things that Amy talks about is how obviously work has changed. We've dealt with this for a long time because as a colleague uh, on the other side of the world, you know, we're used to interacting with each other on video and sometimes having the opportunity to be in person. But for, I think, a lot of people in the hybrid work environment, this is really a new experience of having people who are not always in the same place. And so I'm just curious what you think about how organizations can begin to design workplaces that help us build relationships when we're not all physically in the same place at the same time. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've definitely dealt with for a bit. And I think what benefit has come out of the last couple of years is that we have a little bit of shared empathy over now what it is to be remote and to be on kind of the maybe the minority end of the presence spectrum <laughs> when we do have meetings. Yep. <laughs> um, whereas I think in the in the past, it was more that uh, somebody would call in and um, maybe they were always the person from Germany <laughs> calling into a team of an American you know, group. So, mm-hmm. so at least uh, there's a little bit of a shared understanding now of what it feels like to be on the other side of things. Yep. Um, and I, I think one of the things, uh, you know, we talk about is just how to build a little bit more equity across the, um, 
presence. Um, so even when you're not there, how do you make somebody feel like they can not only follow the conversation, but contribute to it? Um, and that, you know, they're not uh, missing out, I guess, because they're not there. So going into like what that means for space design and the you know, the products that, that we build and try to make to help that really look at thinking about that through the lens of the person that's joining a space remotely, um, not just, you know, designing it physically being there in person, but what it might be to experience it through the camera lens as well. Mm-hmm. And then a huge part of this is also just, we've spent more energy now than ever um, orchestrating uh, these interactions, you know, mm-hmm. trying to be movie directors. And instead of just being freed up to be humans talking to each other about ideas and the work that we're doing, uh, sometimes we have to divert a lot of energy into just orchestrating. Um, so one of the best things we can do is just make that easier and, and try to remove the burden of orchestration of trying to, you know, just have, have normal work interactions, I guess. Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in the terms of orchestrating, but you're right. It, it is a little bit like creating a movie production. You know, you have to think about your set and your lighting and your audio. And and I would just go further that a lot of organizations maybe haven't thought about, you know, you might still be living in an environment where it's just your laptop and that doesn't always create the best experience, right? Right. So I want to talk with you about uh, another thing that Amy had to say that I, I just thought was so interesting. And this idea about being uncomfortable. And I think what she was talking about where she's saying that avoiding conflict or avoiding interacting with people, you know, like that's easier for us to do now kind of in a hybrid environment. But at the same time, I feel like as a designer, like all the designers I know seem to be the people who are most comfortable with being uncomfortable, if that makes (laughs) sense. So I'm just kind of curious what you think about bringing together this idea of creating environments that are inclusive and meshing that with dealing with this discomfort that we feel when we are maybe put in situations that push our boundaries a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I love uh, I love when Amy talked about this and, and she said something along the lines that, um, you know, because of discomfort, it really encourages the collision of, you know, ideas that normally wouldn't come together, right? Um, it's those creative frictions that we say are pretty much the, um, I don't know, the transaction of what you need for innovation. And so Mm -hmm. if companies want to be more agile and more innovative, you need to kind of enable these collisions. And sometimes they're uncomfortable because you just need to be exposed to ideas that maybe aren't in your own head or in your echo chamber, as she also mentioned, right? Um, Right. So I think when it comes to designing workplaces, it's about making sure that people do feel comfortable because you provide them with the right variety of assets that are the right thing for them at the right time of the workflow that they want and give them comfort in being there. But consequently, (laughs) because you are in a space that has uh, your needs met in a variety of ways, you do have a natural interaction with people, right? And so, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it is about balancing this idea that um, we are getting cozier and cozier and Mm -hmm. sort of a little bit more isolated. And at some point, I think, you know, there's a point where you're just like, okay, you don't know what you don't know from sitting in your home by yourself. And you, you kind of, you want to go out to the grocery store, right? Or you want to, you want to go out and walk around town. And right. I think that like urban planning metaphor is always very interesting for the workplace where it's like, you want to have a, a comforty home kind of feeling where you're maybe more trusted people around you, but then you also want the opportunity to feel, I don't know, permission or empowered to get exposed to other things without being too far out of your comfort zone. So I think there's just a balance there between providing comfort by meeting people's needs and especially the variety of needs that they might have, but also giving them, I guess, the excuse and catalyst to exchange. Mm-hmm. I always feel like, you know, when I come into the workplace in Munich where you're living, somehow you guys have achieved that vibe, that feeling like literally it feels like the place is within a physical neighborhood. But then when I come into the workplace, it, it has kind of that neighborhood vibe where I'm able to see and interact with people. And I, I don't, I'm just curious if you have any like specific thoughts about, you know, how you guys achieved that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that was something, you know, recognizing that this, well, let's call it friction or the ability to exchange with each other uh, is, is absolutely critical, I mm-hmm. think, um, especially for how we talk about what innovation is, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you build an innovation center, you think, okay, well, what does that mean for how you zone the space and design the space to make sure that people feel a sense of permission 
to be in other people's natural territory or mm. um, even beyond that, incentivize them to be there. Um, so one of the things that we look at often is what's a what's a communal attractor or what's the thing that incentivizes somebody to go to a space that they maybe wouldn't go otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think like everybody, um, again, I'm going to use the urban planning metaphor, but if people live in their own apartments or their houses and they go to the city center, like a, a work cafe, that's where the main exchange happens. Right. But what's going to take them to somewhere else outside of that, that, you know, might be the fancy grocery store that they want to go to once a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in the past, it was things like uh, special video conferencing rooms, but now everybody has a video conferencing room on their laptop. <laughs> so, so really it's like, where are the places that they want to go that, that will attract them to places um, that ne- aren't necessarily owned, that they can go to and say, oh, I'm allowed to be here. And in doing so, their route to that particular destination enables them to see things that maybe they don't normally see or, you know, walk by certain functions or teams that they wouldn't normally say and say, mm-hmm. oh, wow, I didn't know the sustainability team was working on that. I'm going to be working on that, too. Maybe I should actually you know, learn more about that. Yeah. So it's really kind of mixing the pot as far as like, you don't know what you don't know, but if I give you an excuse to walk by it, you know a little bit more, right? That is so interesting. Hey, Jesse, thank you so much. I, I know like we could talk for hours about this, but I think that <laughs> this has been a really helpful conversation. So I really appreciate you joining me to reflect on this conversation with Amy Gallo and how we apply that to the places that we work. So thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share the podcast with a friend or colleague and visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. What's up next, Rebecca? Next week, our conversation is with Heather McGowan. Heather is a future of work strategist and author. And not a lot of jobs have pensions anymore, but she says learning is the new pension. And she actually has a formula to talk about it. So we hope everyone will join us for that. Thanks again for being here. And we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, Technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez. And our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.